0: The way that we work has been disrupted by the global pandemic. And for those of us who are fortunate enough to have kept our jobs, it's also caused many of us to question why we do what we do and wonder if there are ways that we could have a more positive influence on the world. So we thought
1: it would be great to speak with Judy Wharton, co-founder of the executive search agency Wharton Co., who has guided many leaders through navigating career changes, and who shares her perspective on
0: knowing when it's time for something new and when it might be better to stick it out. We also chat with Judy about pay transparency, the kinds of skills that individual contributors should cultivate to advance their career, and tips on negotiating your salary. Whether you're looking for a new role or hoping to make your current job more aligned with your goals, you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's vice chair and president, Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum, It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Judy Wirt, thank you for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you for having me. Judy, you do interesting, meaningful work. You help companies find some of the best design leaders out there. And you've been at this for quite some time. How long have you been doing this?
2: Uh, Wharton Company was launched in 1985. I've been, been and had a few years before that, before Wharton Company. So all told, close to 30 years.
0: So just, just for a little bit.
2: <laughs> just a little bit.
0: Presumably, you've seen a lot of evolution of the software industry, of design, design teams, how companies think about design, and how leaders fit into organizations. Curious, like, what's changed in the past 30 years?
2: Everything. It's a fast and furious industry now. The impacts of technology and scale have been tremendous in changing the way the industry works and the role of a designer in that new day. It's no longer a graphic design exercise or a form exercise, or it's just about beauty, you know, technology and complexity. And scale really have changed the conversation. You think back about the luminaries of design, you know, like Paul Rand, Charles Eames, Dieter Rams. This area was around craft clarity but they were all consultants they were not employees and they were not thinking about scale as we are today so think about that as sort of 30 35 40 50 years ago and then in what 2007 when apple released the phone it was kind of the first in user experience caring about human behaviors and how design impacts that. And that started I think a new chapter for the design world and for designers and to work with engineers and designers to work with business minded folk. And here we are today. It's kind of a new decade that's upon us and there's so much social and cultural and public health crises going on. And it's just made everything more complex. And now it's really about the business value of design, not just the craft.
0: Yeah. I want to push on that scale idea a little bit more. Charles and Ray Eames did want to operate at scale. They wanted to create the best for the most for the least, was their motto that guided their studio. So they were creating a lot of products and shipping at scale, but they were a very small group. It was not that many people. And software teams today, it is very different there are a lot of people why are these teams so much bigger now and and how do you think that relates to the way that companies think about design differently today
2: the teams are bigger because there's more considerations to address there's more problems more opportunities and more problems to be solved that people weren't thinking about when charles was designing he didn't have to think about sustainability in the way that we think about it today. You didn't have to think about government in the way that we think about today. I don't think they thought about those things in the way that we think about them today. And so it takes a lot more people to wrestle with those problems.
0: Certainly fewer moving parts with a plywood chair versus, say, uh, an iOS app or something like that.
2: And they weren't necessarily... Well, they were working with engineers and people who came you know, human factors, they were working with these different disciplines, but I think it was more about functionality and beauty and craft.
1: Judy, you were touching on the business aspects of design, and what do you think the expectations are these days for a design leader to understand the impact of design on a business or show a return on that investment?
2: Huge. They need more than ever to be thinking about what are they doing and how is it affecting people and what kind of people and what kind of geographic destinations they're thinking about how to build culture within organizations they're thinking about how to build infrastructure what do the teams look like they're having to think about how to build talent strategies how to get the right people in place they're thinking about ethics they're thinking about what the business is trying to solve for At a meta scale, of course, this depends on what the business is, but I think scale is what everybody is thinking about now. And so when you talk about scale, you're talking about more diversity in terms of the makeup of teams, the makeup of the organizations, the diversity of leadership, the diversity of thought, the diversity of gender, the diversity of the entire population of what makes up for those people who are designing.
0: There are a lot of individual contributors kind of in this early stage of their career who see that opportunity that you're describing of, you know, I I could do some big things. I could work on some really big projects. And there comes a point where you need to stop playing the instrument and play the orchestra instead. It's a very different way of thinking about it, about how everyone works together and collaboration and being a leader. How have you seen individual contributors, ICs, kind of step into that role? And what makes for a good first step?
2: A good first step. Well, for start, they need to come in with passion and a level of resilience and perseverance. Because it's going to be quite a ride for them. And their eyes are wide open, but they have no idea what's ahead of them in terms of what they need to learn. The kinds of people that they're probably going to work with. I don't think education prepares in the same way that no one is prepared to be a parent. No one's prepared to be a full-fledged designer. So they need to come in with a huge level of curiosity and participation and intentionality and adaptability. And I think those are the qualities that are going to set the foundation for how they grow into being a mature design leader. They need to develop the breadth and depth of their skills. They need to work on their craft. They need to find their mentors. They need to establish a network and behaviors for work. They need to be an open vessel.
1: What are some of the stumbling blocks that you've seen from either people moving from IC to manager or a manager leading a larger team? Is there any threads you see in the challenges that they face?
2: I think the designer needs to figure out if they want to be a contributor or a leader. And they may not know that at the beginning either, but designers that love the craft, want to stay with the craft, they're a path for them to be a very high level craftsperson extraordinaire. And they need to surround themselves then by people where they can learn and master that. There are designers who Their path is to become a design leader and they need to study what those design leaders are doing. And I think they're going to stumble. They're going to weave in and out. I can think of designers that thought they wanted to be leaders and realized they were forced into leadership. They became a design manager and they're given these titles and they think they have to be that, but they've learned, you know what? Not as happy leading a group of people, I'm really happy being close to the craft. And they need to honor that and not fight that. And I think their voice is in everyone's head of what they think they're supposed to be. And that isn't necessarily where they should go. And so I think being true to yourself and allowing some disappointing experiences to help inform what you should be doing is really
0: important. You've worked with so many very talented people throughout your career and and helped them figure out their career in many ways. Hope so. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Absolutely. And just thinking back on some of those all-stars that you've worked with whose careers rocketed up pretty quickly, are there some insights from what made them particularly successful? How they went from that you know, passionate craftsperson to a successful leader operating on a higher level? What were those traits?
2: Self-awareness is number one. Knowing who you are, what you stand for, what you believe in, what you care about. I think that's the foundation for someone who is going to grow into to be a great design leader. Just an insatiable level of curiosity and learning mindset is going to be critical for anybody who is going to grow into becoming a design leader. Having a few rough tides in your journey is going to teach you what you might not have learned had you not had that, those thunderstorms in your career. But I think that people that do really well and that grow up, they're paying attention every step of the way, and they're honoring what they love to do and what they care about. And they want to just build on that every step of it.
1: Judy, I imagine in your work that you spend some time with your clients, helping them figure out how to negotiate their salary. Are there any you know, high-level tips you can give or, or even a script, maybe for becoming better at that?
2: I really try to encourage people to think about negotiation, not as a negotiation, but as a conversation. Because you're going to be much more open to hearing where a company can be where they're willing to go. So if you treat negotiation like a conversation, that's gonna help the script, if you will. And then it isn't necessarily a scripted because it's a conversation. And then I think really helping both sides, the client and the candidate think about the financial and the non-financial value of the opportunity. Financially, what do you need? What do you want? How does this fit into your family needs? The non-financial value is, is it going to give you joy? And the tension of those two things need to be considered when you're in a negotiating mode. And I can't stress that enough. I think about a couple of scenarios recently where the candidate was so glued to their spreadsheet of base, bonus, equity, they couldn't get out of the spreadsheet. And they weren't in the conversation. They were in the spreadsheet. And guess what? That didn't work out for that person. Because it wasn't a conversation. It was a spreadsheet conversation. And that is just not enough if you really care about finding the right place.
0: I've heard you talk a few times about this philosophy of work and life and People often think of those as separate, but you think about it differently, that there's a very integrated perspective that we should be taking to our work. Could you talk to us about that when you're helping people find the right career pathway and you're not just providing guidance to the candidate, but also to the company as well. How do you talk to both sides about that idea of like, how does this career, this job that is part of a career fit into one's life?
2: Well, you ask a lot of questions on both sides to hear the intent of where someone is coming from. And it depends on where they are in their career. If you start at the beginning, when someone is just starting out, there's a lot less contingencies that might be required to think about. So they can take more chances. They may not have a family yet. They may not have a elderly parent yet that needs your attention. There's just more room to play. It's a playground for them and they should look at it that way. As they evolve in like the next phase of their career, say six to 10 years, which is a place of defining new challenges come in that weigh into what you need to do, what you want to do, because you now have maybe dependents that are relying on you. And so that's when work, life kind of start to converge. And you can't ignore either either of those things because they all matter. They matter for your happiness quotient and your performance. So it does depend on where you are in your growing up phases.
0: Sure. How do you personally think about this, like your work that you do day to day and your life? I know that you've got lots of outside interests, but... Nonetheless, you are very passionate about what you do.
2: I have to say that I can't separate my work and my life anymore, maybe because I run a business that's with my partner, who's my husband, that the conversations about people are conversations about people, whether it's a family member, a neurotic family member, or a neurotic (laughs) client. You know, like the same principles apply in many ways. So the learnings that I gather in work apply to how you negotiate with a parent in a difficult situation, how you negotiate with your children. These are general principles that I think you can't separate at the end of the day. You can say, okay, it's, it's six o'clock, I need my boundary, or it's seven o'clock, I need my boundary, and I'm going to go bake a cake. And, you know, there is a separation in terms of the rhythm of your day, I think that what you struggle with at work is probably what you struggle with in your home. I think about an individual who I'm talking to, who I've known for many years, and I think there's some struggles going on in his home front right now, which I become privy to. You know, I I learn about what's going on in people's lives just by listening and asking questions. It's no surprise that he's also struggling with what he's doing at work because there's discontent at home. And so you can't compartmentalize that. He's in a uh, exploratory phase. He just took time off. He's on sabbatical because he's got some struggles and the struggles are real. Struggles at home impact his work. Struggles at work impact the home. So you need to pay attention to both to really be able to transcend and be at your best.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all. To quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Design Better today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P dot com slash design better. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly ninety thousand hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at Crash Plan. Visit
1: crashplan.com/designbetter for 50% off your first year of Crash Plan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using Crash Plan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. Crash Plan works efficiently in the background while you work encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's crashplan.com slash design better, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Just to go back to the negotiation conversation for for a minute, there's a lot of data out there that shows that women aren't as likely to negotiate when considering an offer. Is is there anything, any tips you can give for the women in our audience to be more confident about doing that? Actually,
2: very timely this week. In fact, we just were able to come to a, a wonderful closure on a search that had a long journey and this particular candidate was a diverse female candidate. And the client also was very respectful of the gender and the ethnic conversation. And they came to the candidate with a number and a candidate called me because we were in ongoing exchange throughout And she was apologetic for wanting more money. And she had very good reasons why she was asking for more money in terms of what she was walking away from, what she had built in the previous company by way of equity. And she was like, is it okay to ask? And I'm like, yeah, you need to ask. We need to ask. They can always say no. But if this is what you believe will help you say yes, then ask. There's no harm in asking. If it's a thoughtful ask, if it's an irresponsible ask just to see how much more you're going to get, that has a different energy. So come in with the right spirit, come in with knowing if you want this job, and then ask for what will make you feel comfortable on your first day of work.
1: Do you have any kind of specific tips on how to position that in a way that's thoughtful that people might be able to take away?
2: Make it a conversation. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what would make me feel more comfortable. Now start the conversation. How does this work for you? How does this work within the organizational structure? Help me understand what that would mean for you as an organization to give me more money. I go back to making it a conversation. Versus This is what I need, and I'm not willing to accept less. There goes the conversation. End of story. It takes on a completely different energy, and it becomes sometimes a cantankerous negotiation. And sometimes it doesn't work out because
0: no one's felt heard. Judy, there are a lot of people right now going through this past year, so many challenges in personal lives. (sighs) And as you alluded to, it definitely affects professional life. The soil has been disturbed, and it kind of raises a lot of deep soul-searching about, am I in the right place, doing the right thing? Is this work meaningful? Am I good at this? Do I want to keep doing this? What sort of advice do you have for our listeners about knowing when it's time for a change? And then there's this other thing, which is, it's a passing thing. Like, I'm in this complicated part of this project, or the company's going through a change. Like, That could be very different. In the tech world, there are a lot of people who jump ship if the wind is just blowing a little bit the wrong way. And then they hop around and there's opportunity cost in hopping around. So how do we know when to stick it out and just deal with some adversity at the moment or decide, you know what, it is time for something new?
2: It's a really good question. There's no right answer to that. I'll start off by saying adversity is a good thing because it challenges you to think about all those things. Adversity helps shape character. Then you decide, is the adversity causing me too much pain and grief? Do I wake up every day with a stomach ache? Do I not believe in the company's value system? Is there no way to repair how my relationship is going with my boss? and that boss isn't going anywhere, and they're not interested in making any changes, and there's, there's no real open conversation happening, it may be time to leave. It also depends on how strong you are to whether if a company is going through some hiccups, growth spurts, new leadership where everybody has to reacclimate, you have to ask yourself those hard questions. Is it about me? And all the things that are really important to me that are just not happening, I don't believe in where this company is going, I don't believe I'm to, I'm growing anymore, it may be time to move on. I do think that people move on sometimes too quickly. And it's funny that I'm saying that, right? Because I'm in the business of moving people. Right. But I often tell the story of, and you've probably heard this before, there was a very senior individual at a company and he was like, I got to get out of here, I got to. Already I knew that that was a a signal to me that he wasn't ready to get out of there. He was trying to escape something. And if you're trying to escape something that could be worked through, it may be a reason to stay, to work through that, because that problem may just follow you to the next company. So is it an existential crisis you're having? Is it a company crisis that's happening? is that you really just feel in your gut that it's time. And sometimes you just trust your intuition and gut that it's time. I try to help unravel those conversations with people and ask people what they care the most about and get them to talk and get them to hear themselves talk and realize that what they care about is just not happening at that company. Or what they care about can be found elsewhere.
1: That idea of sticking it out and, and facing the problems. It's funny, my parents are both psychiatrists and they, they have a term for it. They call it the geographic solution. So they have maybe a patient that's having some relationship problems and they move to another state, kind of thinking that'll solve it. But they're really just kind of bringing the problems along with them.
2: Just moving for moving's sake will never solve the problem. I mean, I, well, I take that back. You know, some people, they may be in an urban environment and they really need to be surrounded by nature. And that's very real for them. And they come... To realize that after spending some time in the wilderness, like, you know what? I feel more myself. I feel more at peace. I can think better. My creativity has improved. I just feel more myself in a certain kind of environment. Then it's not running away from. Then it's acknowledging an inner voice that matters.
1: Yeah, on that note, how has, you know, with the pandemic and this shift, especially in the technology sector to more remote options, how has that affected both your work and the opportunities that you see for your clients as far as choosing where they want to live, different opportunities?
2: Oh my gosh, it's changed the conversation entirely. A, companies are being much more flexible as they need to be if they want to retain talent because individuals that haven't been home with their kids realize, what have I been missing? I miss taking my kid to school or to the park for an hour They're not going to give that up again. Oh my gosh, I've been commuting three hours a day to Cupertino all that time that I've spent in a car when I could be with my family going to a baseball game or a piano recital. So I think it's awakened everybody's perspectives on what matters for sure. And so I think companies are being forced to think about be more geographic agnostic. Maybe the company's on the East Coast, so there's now a request that from a time zone perspective, you can relocate anywhere on the East Coast. The hours in the day, people are weaving in and out in a very different way. Now it's about a level of trust that maybe didn't exist before, that people are going to get their work done when they get their work done. And I think that's amazing because not everyone's is performance is at its best, starting at nine in the morning. Don't ask me to schedule a conference call at eight in the morning. I'm not going to do it anymore because I know that you're not going to get the best of Judy. Of course, there are exceptions, but I think people have found their rhythm. They've found what matters to them more than ever. And companies have had to pay attention to this. And the leaders of these companies are also feeling the same. So there's a lot more empathy around a parent at home with three kids homeschooling. And they're also a parent with three kids homeschooling. So there's a a new level of understanding that I think has emerged. And it's TBD. We don't know exactly how it's all going to play out. But there's definitely a trend of people moving to the city that they want to live in, being closer to family, being farther away from family. You know, it depends on who you are. But yeah, it's changed the conversation in every way. I think companies are going to evaluate, do people need to be in the office three days a week, four days a week? I don't think anyone is going to expect five days a week anymore.
0: Amen. That's a great change.
2: I think it's a fantastic change. Yeah. But it does create new challenges in terms of rhythm of your day, Mm -hmm. learning how to take breaks. Absolutely. Creating rituals for your day that take you away from your screen and your Zooms. So those are new challenges in finding out how you best show up for people around you.
0: What do those rituals look like for you? Do you have a way to kind of like get into your workday and take those breaks to recharge your batteries? That is definitely a lesson that I think is still in flight right now is how do I not burn out during this pandemic. There's a lot going on externally. What we hear is a lot of people are working more. Yes. And they're at a point where they're feeling particularly depleted. So Mm -hmm. what might those rituals look like that could help us strike a better balance?
2: Well, I am not a master at those rituals when I'm super busy, or my calendar is quite full. But when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is I go get my coffee, and I make it very slowly. I make it so that I can really enjoy the cup of coffee. And I have three dogs, and they follow me to the coffee maker. So the day begins with coffee and dogs. And then I usually sit down, and, and this isn't necessarily a great ritual, but I do look at my phone, and I check to see if there's anything timely that I need to address or things that I need to start thinking about And then I put the phone down. So it's just a sort of, say, uh, going into cold water for a quick second to see what's in store for me for the day. Then I get ready, shower, dress. But I try to go slowly in that process. So it's a little bit of a meditative experience. And while I'm doing that, I put on, I have a very specific morning music tape that I put on. It's sort of a mix of yoga and a few of my favorite artists and it just kind of gets my juices going. That's great. And then I go and I make my smoothie and then I sit at my desk with my glass of water that I make sure I drink all day throughout the day. And if I'm really centered, I will get up from my chair every hour just to move. Even if it means taking a call while I'm moving, build in lunchtime, really important to build in that break Do I do it every day? No, I'm not so good at that every single day. But I know when I'm not doing it. So I'm paying attention when I'm not creating that space for myself. And by the end of the day, you know, I turn off my computer. I turn off all the notifications. I turn off all the sounds. I might still look at my phone, but maybe it's to peek at Instagram or read the New York Times or look at some of the tweets of people that I really enjoy following. But I try to mark the beginning of the day and the end of the day with breaks in between. And lucky I don't have screaming children behind the scenes, though I do have three barking dogs after squirrels. So I do have interference, but those are my rituals. And at the end of the day, we try to build in a walk. When the summer arrives, which is just around the corner, I'll swim every morning. So some diversity. In my day, I think the worst thing you can do is just like wake up and go right to your desk. Yeah. Cuz it's calling for you and there's going to be plenty for you to respond to. My feeling like is people are much more understanding that you may not reply to an email in, you know, a New York minute in the same way you might have in the past.
0: I see that too. And for myself, I find that if I can take 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes for a walk in the middle of the day, yeah, Get some vitamin D from sunshine or, you know, just even walk out to the garden.
2: Well, you and I both share our love for garden. I do go out in the middle of the day and I have a propensity for loving to weed. So I do my weeding as a way to sort of just break up the day as well in the summertime. In the winter, I'm a little bit more in hibernation because it gets pretty cold out. But the garden is a, is a great daybreaker and day brightener.
1: So I, I hate to be the guy that keeps bringing it back to salary, but I know our audience <laughs> has a lot of curiosity because, and given, just given your experience and your sort of breadth of knowledge in this realm at envision we recently did this salary report where we surveyed a bunch of design leaders. And one of the things that came out of it was that the design leaders that are really happy with their salaries are 50% more likely to be working at a company with pay transparency. And I know that's a tricky thing to navigate. What are your thoughts on pay transparency? Where do you see it? Like, How do you see that trend line moving? Well,
2: everyone's talking about pay transparency. I think there's pros and cons to transparency, but I generally believe transparency is a good thing. And if people know that they're coming in at a certain level, this is what the level earns. I think equity gets a little bit more complicated in terms of transparency, and I'm not an expert on that, so I don't know that I would want to go too deep in that space, but I think generally transparency is a really good thing, and especially as we are dealing with diversity issues, inclusion issues, gender conversations, it has to be more transparent because it's better for business. If you have a happier group of people who understand exactly why they are where they are and why they're getting paid where they're getting paid, then there's more acceptance.
0: Judy, what's the best book you read in the past year?
2: The Principles of Uncertainty by Myra Coleman is something that I love because we live in a time of uncertainty. And this is a children's book written for adults. And it's got whimsical paintings and beautiful images, but it talks a lot about happiness and the inner monologue and what is identity. And I invite everybody to, to read that book. It's just, I'm a big Monica fan. So I mean, everything that she writes, and it's not like a deep 600 page book, but sure. it's a book that kind of centers me.
0: Sounds very timely. <laughs>
1: And Judy, I did see on your Instagram you had a list of books, and I saw the Myra Coleman book, and then the Elements mm-hmm. of Style, and it made me think you probably have the edition of Elements of Style that's illustrated by Myra Coleman. Do you have that? I sure do. Yeah, it's wonderful.
2: Yep, I actually collect Myra Coleman books on eBay. That's my little side passion. Whenever there's a book, and I buy extras so that I can give them as gifts to people because I just think her work's beautiful. And of course, you know she's connected to the colorful Tibor common so I feel like I'm also celebrating a design icon by buying her books.
0: That's fantastic. Judy, for those who are thinking about what's next and thinking about career change, how can they learn more about you and and the work that you're doing?
2: How can they learn about us? Well, they can contact us and we can have a conversation as time allows. They can learn what we care about through visiting our website While we haven't been active on our blog, you can see the kinds of things that we are paying attention to in the industry across every discipline. Uh, But the best way to learn about us is probably having a conversation with us. And I invite those conversations all the time. Oftentimes people think they need to talk to me about a job, but they don't need to talk to me about a job. They can talk to me about what they're wrestling with and they can look at the conversation as sort of planting seeds for the future and that is a deep philosophical belief that i have about our work is there doesn't have to be a transactional moment in the conversation it can be just a 15 20 minute conversation of this is how we work this is what they care about this is what we value in our relationship with you over the long term so the best way is conversation unfortunately i haven't written lots of books and i'm not a big blogger so I have been invited more recently to podcasts like this, so I guess that would be another way to learn.
0: And what's your website address?
2: www.wortco.com W-E-R-T-C-O. Wert is all in one line on the keyboard if you have it. It's
0: <laughs> <That's> convenient. <laughs> That's very handy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: There you go. Fantastic. Judy, thanks so much for joining us on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.